0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And on today's podcast we have an interview this time with two people, uh Michael Bornstein and his daughter Debbie Bornstein Hollandstad. And Michael Bornstein is an Auschwitz survivor. He lived as a child in the camp for seven months, which is astonishing in and of itself, as most children lasted only two weeks there. He and his daughter have written an account of his childhood, starting with his family in Nazi-occupied Poland. Michael was born in Żarki, Poland, when it was considered an open Jewish ghetto under German occupation. And The Bornstein family story is incredible. Michael and many of his relatives survived through unbelievable instances of luck and happenstance, although his father and his brother were murdered at Auschwitz. And the book that shares this narrative is called Survivor's Club, and Michael and Debbie were gracious enough to talk to me about their family's history as well as the collaborative process in writing this book. One thing that's truly lovely about this book is that it's, uh, in a lot of ways, truly uplifting. It's obviously very dark and very serious in its subject matter, but at the same time, as uh, a story that is overall... There's a lot of positivity in there. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. We are extraordinarily fortunate today on the show because we have... As guests, Michael Bornstein and Debbie bornstein Hollenstadt, his daughter, who co-wrote a book titled Survivors Club, which is about Michael's experience as a child in Auschwitz. Uh, first, uh, you both explain why you decided to tell this story in the preface, but would you also share that here with our listeners?
1: Uh, I have wanted to write this story for a very long time, probably since I was in my 20s, so 20-some-odd years now, and my dad really wasn't ready to talk and I think that a series of things finally happened. Um, One is that survivors, older survivors, aren't here anymore to talk. And and I know that my dad um, realized that that left him up at bat. Um, The grandkids were (laughs) a big part of the reason. My dad has 11 grandkids. Three of those kids are mine. (coughs) Pardon me. Three of those kids are mine and they are quite pushy and they, they wanted to hear their papa tell them stories. They wanted to know what he had been through and they wanted to learn about the Holocaust, not through books but through his stories. So I think that helped pressure him into it and um, I think given everything that's going on in the political world right now, um, as it turns out, there's never been a better time for him to have chosen to do this.
2: I just want to emphasize uh, that, first of all, I'm very proud to be a U.S. citizen but uh we don't want to forget what happened in history and uh we have some things going on like the alt right uh uh and that's one of the things that uh gave us inspiration uh, uh this question about Muslims, Black Latinos and other minorities and i think uh, that all has something to do with what happened to me And the discrimination that we had, uh, not just in Auschwitz, but after the war uh, and some in the U.S.
0: And, Michael, you actually first became aware of footage of yourself as a young boy at the camp while you were completely unexpectedly watching a movie with your wife. What was that moment like?
2: Well, it was uh, unusual. We had some friends. We watched the movie and uh, we saw the video of myself, uh close-up of my tattoo, and I just couldn't believe it because I hadn't seen that video before and uh, I was very, very surprised. And uh, that's basically it.
1: So, right after he viewed it, he called the director in Hollywood of the movie, The Chosen, and explained, you know, you, that was video of me. Oh, my gosh, you know, where did that come from? That that was um, video of me at Liberation, and the director said, well, what do you want? And my dad joked, oh, I want a starring role in your next movie. And the man hung up on him. My father really just wanted to see if we could somehow get a clip of it.
2: So I... Uh... Bought a movie camera and went into the theater, and uh, the uh, movie director was kind enough to let me take a picture of that.
1: Yeah, he sat with his big home movie camera in the back of the theater in Indianapolis, um, and they allowed him to film the screen just so that we would have that footage because it was long before the era of Googling for video uh, on YouTube, so it was the only way to access that. So that was something we treasured for a long time, having this VHS tape of that liberation footage.
0: Oh my goodness, that's an amazing story. And I know that as you put this whole book together, you interviewed a lot of relatives to piece the narrative together. Was there ever reluctance on the part of those who had been through this ordeal to revisit those times?
2: No. Uh- I, I would say w- we are fortunate that uh, uh there are some uh, people alive for example Marvin Svarovsky uh who's uh, about 86 87 and uh he told us some stories and some things I hadn't known at all about my father being president of the Judenrat and uh, uh so he talked about uh his experiences we went We were in Israel. We went to Yad Vashem, a Jewish museum, and uh, they were very helpful and uh, showed documents with my tattoo on it that uh, one of the reasons, one of the miracles that I survived is that I was very sick. The Nazis had a death march because they knew they were losing the war, and they wanted to uh, get rid of any remnants of Around, but my mother, my grandmother, and I uh, managed to get into what, quote, unquote, was the infirmary, and uh, we hid there basically while the Nazis went away. We would have surely died in that death march
1: otherwise. Marvin Zborowski, who my father mentioned, um, was incredibly generous with his time and with his stories. Uh, He lived next door to my family, uh, my dad's relatives, and my father, uh, in Żarki, Poland, and he says that he knew our family almost as well as he knew his own. They were almost like family, and while Marvin was very generous with his stories, there were times where he was reluctant because he experienced so much firsthand, and one story in particular that he initially did not want to tell me and, and finally... Started and stopped and, and finally decided to share with me is that um, when he was about 14 years old he was uh, forced into labor in the ghetto and he was supposed to report for work in the morning and he was very sick maybe he had a fever he doesn't know but he said he was just too sick to get out of bed and he stayed in bed and the uh, he woke up to a pillow over his face the Nazi guards had come and they put a pillow over his face they didn't kill him then they dragged him to Um, the jail, and they uh, sentenced him to death for missing his labor assignment. Uh, They were one by one taking people out of the jail shortly after that and killing them. And Marvin said that the jail doors opened at one point, and there was my grandfather, my dad's father. He had bribed the guards to let him out. He had, we um, we learned that he had set up a system of bribery and collected this big pot of money and wherever possible was saving lives and um, making conditions more bearable in the ghetto. And that was just incredible to learn and an incredible piece of information to share with my dad because he, he doesn't remember his father and he can only know about him through these kinds of stories. So it was a really amazing moment to, to, to hear this.
2: That was one of the biggest things that uh, we learned about writing the book Uh, is information about my father. He was president of the Judenrat, which basically means working together with the Nazis and the Jewish people. And uh, when he found out what was going on, he tried to save as many people as he possibly could by either having them... uh, go underground or bribing the nazis or whatever was uh, necessary to get things done
0: give you a little bit of context about what Michael and Debbie were talking about there, the Judenrat were Jewish councils made up of citizens of an occupied zone that the Nazis established to serve as go-betweens between the community there and the German officers so that they could ensure that Nazi orders were being followed. And Michael's father was head of the Judenrat in Jarki, and he used that position to help as many people as he possibly could. We're going to pause here for a brief sponsor break, and then we will continue our conversation with Michael and Debbie.
2: So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
0: In the next segment, uh, Michael talks about his parents and the sacrifices that they made. And he and Debbie talk about how that background really informs his life as a parent. I wonder, Michael, as you had children of your own, did that affect your thoughts about both of your parents and what they did to try to protect you
2: yes it it certainly has affected me I'm very proud that uh, my father uh, uh, was was able to uh, save people uh, it affected me my mother gave us information about uh, uh, survival she uh, uh, I was four years old at the time and for a while she was in auschwitz and she uh, came into the children's bunk she was beaten over the head uh, she shared some of the food with me because the older children were starving too and they were able to take my food away so she gave me some of her bread some of her soup which smelled Terribly, you uh, had to close your nose to eat it, but it uh, basically saved my life then.
1: And as a father, I can tell you. As a daughter, um, I can tell you that um, people ask me all the time, "Was your father affected? Did he have depression? Did you know how was he affected by this?" And he is an overwhelmingly positive man, and he created an incredibly positive life because of that optimistic attitude he's always had. And he was just a great everyday soccer dad. I never really thought about him so much being a Holocaust survivor, but I see now that whether he learned it or whether he inherited it or, or what happened, I can say that, um, he is as protective of us as my grandmother was of him in Auschwitz. Um, he puts his family first, he puts his kids first and his, now his grandkids first. And, um, I don't know whether he learned that from all the sacrifices he saw his mother make for him or whether that's just who he is because he inherited it from his parents, but I can tell you that um, he is an incredibly positive and wonderful kind of a dad and grandpa.
2: I can also tell you that Debbie was on vacation after she graduated college, and uh, she was going to go to Auschwitz concentration camp, and I begged her not to go because... Uh, I really don't like to see my kids see the horrors, uh, and uh, and she listened to me and didn't go to Auschwitz at the
1: time. He did. They're... He always tried to put us in a bubble and protect us, but I'm really proud of him that he recognizes now how important it is to talk um, for so many reasons. For us, for the kids, it was important to know these stories, and I think for the country, especially now, and, and for the world, it's important to share them because... As soon as we forget, you know, history repeats.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I have to wonder, Debbie, what the experience of working on this project with your father was like for you. Did it change your relationship?
1: My dad and I were always close. He's close with all four of us kids. Um, But certainly um, we are incredibly close now. I have a whole new respect for my dad. You know, growing up, we would make fun of him because he... um, could never leave a morsel of food on on a plate. And he was very careful with money. I mean, I can remember going on vacations where we all had to, you know, hide (laughs) to walk into hotel rooms separately and hide so we could save money and share one room with our big family. And we never got our own meals as kids. We always had to share them at restaurants because, you know, it wasn't because my father couldn't afford it. It's because he was always saving just in case, you know, in the back of his mind, as optimistic as he was, he always had some anxiety, some nerves about you know what he had been through, and making sure that um, you know his family was always protected. And now I think I completely understand where he's coming from. I completely understand and have so much respect for the fact that every decision he made, he always did with his kids' interests and with his family's interests um, in mind. And I have incredible, incredible respect for him for finally deciding to speak out because it wasn't easy. I, um, I know that he's even nervous, um, now sometimes about becoming a target, um, for anti, you know, anti-Semites, um, and deniers. And it took a lot of courage to step up and, and talk publicly. So I have an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, I always did, but especially now.
2: I just want to mention, uh, that Debbie is a fantastic writer, and I'm just amazed that <laughs> she Certainly was a <laughs> she was a terrific poet. And we have some of her poetry hung up on our wall. But uh, she's done an absolutely great job. But you're right. I one of the things that my mother taught me is "Gamze Ya this too shall pass, and we tried to be optimistic that things will go better, and it certainly has with Debbie's book. We've gotten an amazing response, and we're very, very happy uh, in what she did.
1: We didn't know if anybody would care 72 years after the war, um, 72 years after liberation. We didn't know if anybody cared to keep hearing more of these stories, and the response has been so incredible, and um, it's very comforting. It's been a big reassurance to me, but of course to my dad.
0: Uh, Yeah, I understand why the response has been incredible. The book is is really lovely. The way you have laid out the narrative is so engaging. Uh, I can't imagine people not just completely devouring it in a short period of time because it's impossible to put down. One of the lines that really stood out to me in the book was where you were talking about being booked into Auschwitz, and the line is, it takes about 60 minutes to adjust and to accept that everything has just been stolen from you, even your name. And what that made me wonder is how long it took you, Michael, to adjust the opposite way to the idea that the camp had been liberated and you were not a number, but you were Michael again.
2: If If I heard the question correctly, uh, after we were liberated, uh, My mother was in Austria on a labor camp, and my grandmother uh, and I got out of the concentration camp, and we have a picture of her carrying me out of the camp. But uh, just for your information, uh, we came back to the town where I was born. The town is called Jarki in Poland, and the house was occupied uh, by Polish people, and we couldn't get in. So, my grandmother and I put me up and her up in a chicken coop, and uh, that's how we lived. And uh, uh, my mother came back from Austria. She found us in the town of Jarki, and uh, uh, we were able to uh, go back. She was appalled at the conditions that we were living in. Not that they weren't better than Auschwitz, but this was after the war. so. Uh, Things changed after that.
0: One of the things I found really fascinating about this story is that the way the book is laid out, the narrative of your time in Auschwitz ends about halfway through, and the rest is really about your family, your surviving family, recovering after having managed to survive all of this. And was there a conscious choice to structure it that way? You've already talked so much about positivity and how important that is, but that coming back together of, of the remaining family is so moving. And I wonder if you purposely gave that a little more weight.
1: It's called Survivors Club for a reason. This isn't just my dad's story. This is his entire family story. One of the pieces that I've always found so remarkable is that my grandma had six brothers and sisters. So it was a family of seven siblings. They all made different decisions during the war. You know, someone into hiding, one was in Warsaw and ended up in the Warsaw Uprising. One escaped Warsaw and um, ended up being saved by Chuni Sukihara, um and escaping to Japan. Uh, my dad and his parents stayed in Zarki and ended up at Auschwitz. And yet, after the war, one by one, they all came home. Zarki was a town of 3,400 Jews before the war. And about 27 came back to Zarki. And most of them were my dad's family, so it would have been a mistake, I think, to focus just on Auschwitz or just my dad's story, because it's the entire story, it's the entire family story, and it's each piece is so remarkable, and, the, and when you put them all together, it's really unbelievable. Um, and I just I thought it was important to make sure we included that my dad was very close to his aunts and uncles, and as you read, um, when he came to New York they came to his rescue. Dad, Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, first of all, I'll mention to you that after the war, my mother took me to Germany. I was basically very skinny, skin and bone. I didn't have hair on my head and uh, the children bullied me and it was uh, difficult in Germany after the war, but uh, then we came back to the United States. And uh, uh first HIAS, a Jewish organization, put me up because we went on a U.S. destroyer. We came to the U.S. on a U.S. destroyer, I think it's called the Steward, and uh, I was throwing up for seven days and seven nights because of uh, <clears throat> the waves and so on and seasickness. And so first HIAS put me up. I had a high fever. And almost didn't get into the United States because, uh, uh, naturalization people didn't want to allow sick people to come into the U.S. But between my mother and I, we managed to come in. Uh, my one uncle put us up in Brooklyn in his dining room. And so we managed to be there. And, uh, and it goes on and on like that. Uh,
1: But they all stayed, you know, they all looked out for each other in different ways. My Aunt Ola ended up hiring my grandmother to work in her corset shop, um, Agnes Malone in New York, and so she was able to make money that way. When they could, everybody looked out for each other. They were a rare, unique, um, miraculous club of survivors.
2: Yeah, and I worked in a drugstore... Uh, on 96th Street and Madison Avenue for $0.50 an hour, and uh, that's how I inherited my uh, love for pharmacy, went on to uh, uh, become a chambermaid, busboy, waiter, head waiter in the Catskills. Uh, uh, Fordham was wonderful because uh, when I was ready to start college, Fordham University uh didn't have any dorms, and my mother remarried and moved to Havana, Cuba, and I didn't have a place to stay again, and Fordham put me up in uh, their uh, uh, basically... Infirmary. Yeah, an infirmary, whatever it was, and uh, uh, and with a big eight-foot cross in front of my bed. And they were absolutely wonderful, gave me a, a scholarship, and... Uh, became uh, a pharmacist, and then I went on uh, to the University of Iowa, uh, where I uh, received a Ph.D. in Pharmaceutics and Analytical Chemistry, and uh, probably the more important thing is I met my wife Judy there, and we've been married for almost 50 years, So, uh, so that's about it.
0: So Michael spoke briefly in that last segment about how seasick he had been while crossing the Atlantic. And in the book, there is this story about how he and his mother had to convince officials that he wasn't bringing a contagious disease into the country in order to get through immigration processing once they reached uh, the United States. It also speaks volumes that both Michael and Debbie are so quick to credit every kindness that helped Michael along the way as he built his life and pursued an education here in the United States. And we're going to hear more from them. But first, we are going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all. Sistine Chapel so it's going to be a fantastic trip you can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuffy missed in history class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there
1: too there's a city far away
0: a fiction podcast.
1: The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tumen Bay. Tumen Bay. Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything, power gives everything. We have to get away from this place,
0: or we will die too.
2: (laughs) The truth makes us strong. Tumen
0: Bay is our destiny history and fantasy collide they are among us who
1: first a few and now many
0: from creators john scott dryden and mike walker
1: the only thing i ask of you is total and
0: complete loyalty now on the iheart podcast network to bay be
2: sharp and die
0: Listen to all episodes of Tooman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in our final segment of this interview, uh, Michael and Debbie share their perspectives on these sort of just insane circumstances and very fortunate circumstances that enabled so many of their family to survive. And Michael also shares his wisdom on enduring difficult times and managing to maintain a positive outlook. There were both for you, Michael, and so many survivors in your family, just innumerable moments where if things had gone even slightly differently, uh, they would not have survived. So when you think about all of those minute decisions and moments that ultimately enabled you to stay alive until the Soviets liberated the camp, what goes through your mind when you think about how many things had to fall into place for your ultimate survival?
2: Yes, there are a lot of things, starting with the my father being uh, president of the Judenrat and saving a lot of uh, lives, and uh, then uh, the uh, situation in Auschwitz at the end. And, uh, and really,
1: I think it's just, Dad, would you call it a merit- Would you call it miracles? How would you describe it? Miracles, I guess, huh?
2: Yes, I would definitely describe it as a miracle and a lot of miracles. Uh, because, again, in the United States, being uh, uh, able to find Fordham and then Iowa, and uh, things go on and on. But the biggest miracle are my kids and 11 grandchildren, and they're extremely supportive and work together. My grandson, Jake, was uh, had a mitzvah a charity project uh, and talking about the Holocaust, and he had me involved. And that's one of the reasons uh, we got involved with the book, because he wanted to share uh, my experiences with uh, synagogues and other places.
0: And you returned to Auschwitz for the first time in 2001. That had to have been quite an experience. What was that like for you?
2: Well, it was an experience of probably the biggest thing was the anticipation of going back to Auschwitz, and we saw the children's bunk, and we saw the bunk there. We went to Birkenau, uh, where we saw a small oven, and, you know, and I keep thinking back about the smell uh, that I think I experienced in Auschwitz, the marching booths. And uh, it was difficult, but uh, we worked through it and survived. And again, uh, what I said, uh, this too shall pass. Uh, so, And the other thing I want to mention to you about the uh, experience is my mother uh, went back to the house where we lived in Zsiercii, Poland, And uh, even though she couldn't get into the house, she went to the backyard at night and she uh, dug with her hands to try to find the jewels and money and personal belongings that my father and my mother hid in the backyard. The only thing that we found was a kiddish cup, a cup that you make blessings over at different celebrations. And that cup has had a lot of meaning for us. It's uh, been at our wedding, uh, our children's uh, birth, the bris, and uh, and wedding, children's wedding. So uh, we're very proud to, uh, to have that Kiddish cup.
0: You magically got to my next question already. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. What, to either of you, is really the thing that you hope people who read the book take away from it above all else?
2: Well, I yeah. would say above all else, number one is Gamzee war to be optimistic when things are bad. I know that in Germany... Uh, My mother, after bullying and so on, but people, uh, townspeople in Germany, children in Germany, they, uh, uh, bullied me that I was a Jew and called me Yuda. And my mother finally put me into a, uh, Gymnasia Hebride, the Germania Hebrew Gymnasium of Germany. And there were many other children there. That didn't have any family, didn't have any optimism, jumped out of windows, and so from that standpoint, it uh, it we learned to survive and succeed thanks to my mother and uh, and myself, and basically, the, the one thing that I learned is to be accepting. Uh, of other people and, and we mentioned before the alt-right is there and uh, they, uh, they have some uh, swastikas uh, being inscribed and uh, people being called Jew or other blacks' names and Latinos and other minorities and I think it's important for people to learn to be uh, cognizant. And be considerate of other minorities, other religions, and uh, and backgrounds.
1: Yeah, and for me, at this at this moment in time, I feel like it's also important just to take away the fact that to take away from the book the fact that um, when bigotry and um, discrimination goes unchecked, and when power goes unchecked, this is what can happen. I have. I uh, always wondered why it took my dad 72 years to finally open up and I've regretted that I didn't push harder earlier to get him to answer these questions or to get all the answers from my grandmother when she was here. And now it seems like the timing has almost faded that um, this book should come out now. Um, it seems like um, the perfect time to remind the world what happens when bigotry goes unchecked.
0: My deepest, deepest thanks to Michael Bornstein and Debbie bornstein Hollenstock for spending time with me and sharing this really important piece of history. The book is called Survivor's Club, and it's available now. Uh, It's written at a reading level suitable for younger history buffs, but Holly has read it and found it a good read for adults also. Yeah, uh, Debbie did most of the writing for it uh, after she and her father collected this information and did interviews with relatives, and she's a really good writer. She has a news background, so she's able to convey information very clearly. Uh, It's a really good read. I had a hard time putting it down, actually. Uh, Survivor's Club, The True Story of a Very Young Prisoner of Auschwitz, is available, as we said, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can learn more about the book. And if you want, they're also doing some speaking engagements so you can check out their speaking schedule at survivorsclubbook.com. Do you have some listener mail to close us out today? I do, but first I'm going to talk about uh, podcasts. Oh, yeah. So we know if you're listening to this, you listen to podcasts, but you probably know somebody that is not listening to podcasts yet. Maybe they haven't figured out exactly what a podcast is. I know there are people in my family I'm still explaining it to. Um, but uh, surely you have some podcasts that you love not necessarily ours, uh, that might be perfect for them. Like, uh, one of the ones that I'm absolutely in love with and has been, I think it was actually my first podcast, is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I love it. It's funny and it's informative and it talks about science and culture and it's really wonderful. There are so many people that I recommend that to. There's probably some podcasts that you listen to that is exactly perfect to get that person that you haven't convinced that podcasts are the right thing for them yet to listen to. So do that. Uh, share your love of podcasts. You're opening up a whole new world of information for people. And when you do it, you can also post on social media about it using the hashtag tripod, which is try T-R-Y-P-O-D so that you can let other people know what you're recommending to your friends and family uh, and to sort of, you know, make podcasts more available and more accessible for everyone. Our listener mail is from an artist named Claire Wildwood. Uh, she uses that on all of her social media. Normally, we don't give last names, but since she also sent her card and it includes that, I figured I would say that as well. She writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, first of all, Happy Valentine's Day, because we got a Valentine card, which I'll describe in a moment. Uh, she says, Thank you so much for the truly wonderful podcast. I'm an illustrator, and I love listening to the podcast while sketching and painting. I especially love any episode about fashion history. This card I designed uh, brought to mind the fabulous episode on Rose Beltin I love what you ladies do and." Thanks again. Uh, She sent us this beautiful card that she designed, which is a woman in... 18th century Rococo gear. says, veux-tu être ma Valentine? Which is, will you be my Valentine? Uh, it's beautiful. It is black and white with red accents. Uh, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous. It is another thing I'll have to post a picture of. So thank you so much, Claire. Uh, again, her name is Claire Wildwood. If you want to look her up online and see some of her beautiful art, she's at ClaireWildwood.com. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at house You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Mist in history. That means on Twitter as at Mist in History, on Instagram as at Mist in History, at facebook.com slash Mist in History at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you'd like to do a little research just for fun because you are clearly an information-gathering type person, uh, you can go to our parent site, howstuffworks.com. Type in almost anything you're curious about in the search bar and you will generate a list of content that will keep you busy and occupied for quite some time. You can also visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com where we have an archive of every episode we have ever worked on together as well as the... Uh, every episode of the show that's existed before us we also have a new format where we are combining the show notes and the show page into one page so you just have to go to one place to get all of that information that's new they used to be separate so if you're looking for one or the other no longer you can just find them all together Uh, so come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com
1: Find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. On The Road to Somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to the 27 Club
1: on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.